Pray with me. <laughs> no, we need some prayer. <laughs> God, meet us here in this place. As we open up your word, uh, may be acceptable to you what we do here. Uh, may you speak to us through your word and find some fertile soil in our hearts that would lead us into a deeper, more meaningful relationship with you. Amen. So this past week, I was having some fun. I took a look at some survival field courses online to try to learn a little bit about surviving in the desert. Um, by far, everyone would know this. The number one key element to surviving in the desert is the need for what? Water. Water. Perfect. Right? So even the hardiest of like the desert-dwelling people that we've seen in the world, like the Apache in this country or the Aborigines of Australia, they all know that without water in the desert, you don't live very long. It's because when your water intake is cut, your body actually loses its ability to handle heat stress. And so in many of the desert survival field courses, they teach that like the minimum water consumption is about two gallons a day if you're in 110 to 120 degree heat, right? Two gallons, actually a lot. Without it, you've got about two days to live. And so I found this one ranger in Death Valley, California. He said that the ground in Death Valley gets up to about 200 degrees. And so this guy has said he's witnessed cars driving through Death Valley in the summer when the wheels, the tires of people's cars melt off them, okay? And so he was saying this because he was talking about these stranded tourists that are just driving. They don't even want to get out of their car. They just drive through Death Valley. Um, when their tires melt off, it becomes a survival situation. This is amazing. The person that gets out to change one tire can lose a full gallon of water in that much time. Just change, The time it takes to change one tire, a full gallon of water. So today's Exodus story, the people of Israel, they find themselves in this desperate situation in the middle of a scorching desert with no water. And so the clock is ticking, and in their minds and bodies, they're just struggling to deal with the stress that comes along with this. Now you may be surprised uh, to learn how they respond to their kind of desert a wilderness situation, but the more surprising thing is where the water is going to come from, the most unlikely of places. Exodus 17, 1 to 7, reads like this. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with these, this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people, take some elders of Israel with you, take your staff in your hand with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's a little look at what they're dealing with. Doesn't that look fun? <laughs> 38 days after leaving Egypt, the Israelites find themselves in a place that looks like this, with no water to drink. And it's 
fascinating that God actually led them to this place, this desert, which is just completely inhospitable to life. And the desert obstructs life because it can't support it. The comforts of Egypt are gone, and they find themselves at this place, Rephidim, which I just love the meaning of these words. It means resting place. I think that's kind of funny. Um, some resting place this is. Like, it almost became their final resting place. If they had named it that, I'd understand. Without water, uh, that's exactly what it would have been. And so up to this point in the story, God's provided one miracle after another. We're a little bit out of chronological order today, and that would be my fault. Um, but we just look back at the things that have happened in the last 37 days before they get to this place. We had the Passover, which we looked at last week, where they're saved by the blood of the Lamb. God had already parted the Red Sea, and also to kind of provide for that escape route, God had also rained manna, bread from heaven when they were starving. And at this point, what we're supposed to say is we're supposed to look at these Hebrew people in this desperate situation, and they, they're supposed to know how to respond. What God's looking for from them. They're supposed to gather together. They're supposed to pray and they're supposed to wait for God's provision. And that's not what they do. Instead, they begin to complain again. Now, I remember a time when I was without water for only a couple of hours. And I thought for sure I was going to die. Okay? One of, this is actually one of the only stories I tell that I actually gave it a title. Okay? The title of this story is called The Day that Dick Thompson tried to kill me. <laughs> All right? And this is a true story. So myself and my coworker and friend, we called him Big Al, uh, and Pastor Dick Thompson were staying in this really cool retreat center in the mountains of Santa Barbara. It was his favorite place, and so he always would tell me about this particular hike. His favorite hike was there. And so we have a few hours of free time. He says, I'm going to take you guys on my favorite hike. And I'm like, great, this is going to be awesome. But being kind of a minimalist, I took one 32-ounce bottle of water. It was a little bit over 100 degrees, but the hike was only five to six miles. I'm, that'd be fine, right? But it got us lost. I mean, like, really, really, really lost, right? He was sure, he kept saying, that we were going to connect to the right trail just around the corner, you know? Like, a few hundred corners later, we had no clue where we were. We didn't know which direction the retreat center was. Um, I tried to ration the 32 ounces of water, but it quickly ran out. And so the thing about it, if you've ever experienced dehydration, I had a couple times in my life, once with Eric, actually. You remember that one? Um, where I just didn't bring enough water again, my own fault. Um, but you start, you stop sweating, so you know you're, you're getting dehydrated. Then you become nauseous. You think you're going to throw up. And then you just think you're going to die. Like, it just gets that bad. And, and this is exactly where Big Al and I were. We couldn't tell if Dick Thompson was trying to, like, test our toughness, or if we were just such poor performers in our job that he's trying to, like, get rid of us and hope we keel over and die. <laughs> but the funny thing was is that he had this giant camelback filled with water. And every couple of minutes, he's stopping at every turn, taking these huge drinks of water. <laughs> like, he had so much water, he was practically, like, gargling with the stuff. <laughs> and we were not happy. You know, after a couple additional hours in 100 degree heat without any water, we finally make it back to the retreat center. The dinner bell was ringing. 
I, I honestly, I don't know that I've ever been happier in my life. Like, I drank one glass of water after the other. I got in the shower after dinner, and I just shot the thing in my mouth. <laughs> I was drinking out of the shower. Water's never tasted so good. It was the biggest relief. Never had water been that important to me before. And so, after, you know, the, here's the thing. This is the truth. Did I complain to and about Pastor Thompson? You better believe I did, right? When we got back, I definitely had some things to say to him and about him. And let's face it, like, I'm still complaining about it. <laughs> you know, and so when I look at this situation, I'm like, you know, Big Al and I, we, what, what are we supposed to do? Hold hands and sing Kumbaya and pray that God give us water out in the middle of the... Like, that's not what we did. So when I looked at this story, I thought, you know what? I can understand their position a little bit, right? But here's the issue. This wasn't the first time they complained. In fact, when you read the Exodus story, this is the fourth time since being freed that the people have complained. Four times so far. And just like I did on the trail that day, they point the finger of blame at their leader, Moses. I did the exact same thing. So the scripture says they quarreled with Moses. The Hebrew word actually suggests something quite a bit stronger than a little verbal quarrel. We have to picture someone's hand on a big rock, ready to throw them in Moses. This is where, this is where we are. That's what the word quarrel means, right? And so that's the image that we have in our mind. And they have three things they complain about. Here they are. They demand first God's provision. So the people demand that Moses produce water. The big problem here is this, in picking a fight with God's prophet Moses, they're picking a fight with God. The people don't trust that Moses is going to be able to produce. They don't seem to trust that God is going to provide. And so they don't ask for water. They actually demand it. They insist on it. They put God to the test, demanding the water on their own terms. The second thing they do is they deny God's protection. And this, this is, I like this part of the story. They actually are accusing God of trying to kill them, okay? They ask, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? They're not joking about that. They're serious. What, like, drama, what nerve these people had. They are accusing God, the God who saved them, the God who delivered them, the God who's been performing one miracle of provision after another of trying to kill them. And the third thing is they doubt God's presence. They, well, this lack of water must have caused some hallucinations, started playing tricks on their minds, because they actually questioned whether God was with them in this moment or not. And we, we should be able to relate to this. In our own suffering and pain, sometimes we often ask this question, God, are you really there? And so I think one of the biggest questions that's raised by this story is, what's the difference between like a genuine complaint registered to God, something that scripture actually encourages us to do, and this kind of complaining, which the Bible lists as a great sin against God. And here's, here, here's an example of a biblical complaint that the Bible encourages from the Psalms. It says, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And so when I looked at that, it seemed to me that there is a difference between the two kinds of complaining. Faithful complaining is an honest expression 
of our suffering, our trials, our anguish while living in this difficult, fallen, and oftentimes painful world. But the sin of grumbling that we're talking about here takes this to a whole nother level. It charges God with wrongdoing. That's the difference. It points the finger of blame at God. And so this is exactly what happened. The people actually initiate legal proceedings against Moses. This sort of trial ensues. And anyone remember that show? It started in the 80s, The People's Court. Judge, what's his name? Wachner? Joseph Wachner presides over the court. And the idea with that show was that the small, you know, small claims court participants would drop their legal cases if they would accept the binding arbitration of Judge Wachner. And every time, he always started the same. He would say, I know you've been sworn in. I've read your complaint. So you'd read their complaint, you'd make his judgment, listen to him. And that was like small claim stuff. This is, this is big claim stuff. It's a serious thing because the charge is murder. The murder of the people of God by dehydration. This is a capital offense. Moses is on trial as God's representative. And God is really the one, though, being accused of this crime. Of course Moses is concerned. He should have been concerned. They're holding big rocks, right? If he doesn't produce water, the people find Moses guilty, and they stone him to death. They're in the desert, and they're just, you see what's going through their mind. It's like if they're all going to die out in the desert, Moses needs to be the first to go. That's what they're thinking. Hey, if we're all going to die out here, this is the guy that got us into this mess. We're going to take him out first. And so Moses does what the people should have done in the first place. He complains a little bit. But with his complaining, he at least turns to God in prayer. He says, what shall I do with this people? And then God gives Moses the answer. The first and most surprising thing is, like Judge Wapner, God actually grants their request for a trial. He listens to them. He hears out their complaint. But instead of proving Moses' innocence, all God does is he actually meets those three needs, the three complaints that they had. God meets those things and he removes the source of the conflict between Moses and the people. God tells him, go take your staff, take some of the leaders with you to a place where God promised to be standing on a rock at Mount Horeb. Interesting, did Moses see God standing on that rock? The text doesn't really say uh, but the elders all gather around this rock to see what the verdict is going to be. They, they think they know what the verdict is going to be. That's where Moses is about to get it, right? And so Moses strikes the rock as God told him to do, and water pours out of it. Now, the rock that Moses struck with his staff is just this great, incredible symbol of God's salvation. I did not see taking your walking stick on a hike and hitting a rock anywhere in any desert survival manuals, all right? with the hopes of getting water. There's some other places you're supposed to look for water in the desert, but that's, that's not one I've ever seen. What this is supposed to say, this isn't some normal survival tactic. This is another miracle of God's provision. And so what God was really doing was answering those three complaints. And so it kind of brought me over to the New Testament, which Exodus does really well, points us to things. And there's this story in John's Gospel where there's this great exchange between the Samaritan woman and Jesus, and Jesus offers her, do you remember what he offers her? Living water, right? And Jesus said to her, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. That's what Jesus says. All of us want this kind of water to take away our thirst, and how do we avoid putting God on trial? How do we avoid this kind of 
grumbling, complaining, and drink deep from God's well of living water that leads to life. And the first thing that this story suggests is actually a really simple one, which is good. It starts with a really simple word, remember. And so the psalmist, when commenting on this exact story from Exodus, this is what it says in the Psalms. The psalmist wrote that they soon forgot God's works. They did not wait for God's counsel. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. So the people of Israel, they're suffering from like spiritual amnesia. They'd forgotten the previous 37 days, right? 37 days in which God had provided for their every single need, in which God had protected them and clearly been with them every step of the way. And it's amazing when I thought about this, how quickly we too forget when we're struggling with something. How often we make those same demands, demanding provision, protection, and presence. And so the cure for spiritual amnesia is to remember, to recount all of the ways in which God has provided and protected and been there for us when we needed God the most. It's an exercise in gratitude, because in gratitude it's really hard to point a finger of blame when we're grateful. And so I remember this commercial, it was during a Super Bowl commercial, see if anyone remembers this, I can't remember what Super Bowl it was, but FedEx ran a commercial that spoofed that movie with Tom Hanks' uh, Castaways. Anyone remember this commercial? There's a FedEx guy whose plane crashes on a deserted island, and he's there for five years, and the only thing that he has in his possession is one FedEx box, right? And so he vows that someday, if he ever gets off the island, he's going to deliver this package that he had with him, right? And so they show him off the desert island looking like this guy like who hadn't had a shower in five years. Um, he shows up at the suburban door, he knocks on it, a woman answers the door, and he has the package in his hand. And she comes to the door, and he explains that he had just survived five years on a deserted island, and the whole time, he, he was so proud, he kept this package for her, he couldn't wait to make this deliver. And she's like kind of surprised that he went through all that trouble to deliver her package, and she just kind of calmly thanks him, like, this is really weird. Um, and then that FedEx employee, he's dying to know what's inside the box, right? That he held on to for five years on a deserted island. So he asks her what was in it. She slices open the lid, she opens it up, and she's like, oh, nothing really, just a satellite phone, a GPS device, a compass, a fishing pole, a water purifier, and some seeds. <laughs> I thought that commercial was perfect. It's this humorous look at God's care and provision that's oftentimes right under our noses, but somehow they go unseen. This guy had all the tools he needed in order to be rescued, would have saved five years of his life, uh, recalling the goodness and mercy of God in the events of our lives goes a long way to helping us never forget, to never experience the type of spiritual amnesia that our brothers and sisters of Israel did in the wilderness. When we remember God's faithfulness in the past, we're much less likely to point fingers of blame in the future. Life can be hard. It can be painful. I had a tough week a couple weeks ago with the loss of my dog. We all have struggles. Uh, we're all tempted to point the finger of blame at others, at God. And here's what, the, maybe this has got to be the best part of the story. Even if we make this mistake, 
Even if we complain and point a finger of blame at God, what we see in this story, what we see is that God still remains gracious and merciful to the people of Israel despite their lack of faith. That we can trust that God is big enough to take even our mistakenly placed blame upon himself, to still forgive, to still provide, and to still protect, to refuse to quit and give up on us anyway. I wonder if Moses were here today, if he might just implore us to not forget the real and concrete ways in which God has been at work in our lives. Because the ways that God has provided in the past, those are the best indicators of how God will provide in the future. And so the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he actually offered the most interesting interpretation of this passage. What Paul said was, he said, it was, he said he knew who it was that was standing on the rock. He said it was none other than Jesus himself, right? That's, the, that's out there. Like Paul said, it was Jesus. That's who it was that was standing on that rock on that day. Jesus himself in the middle of the desert. So drink in the living water that is Jesus Christ, our rock, and our salvation. We pray with you. Loving God, you, you provide for us. You protect us, and you go with us every step of the way, wherever we are. Help us, God, not to ever forget. Help us to remember the things that you've done to provide for us and protect us and go with us in the past so that that will help us to avoid putting the finger of blame on you in our future. God, go with us as we leave this place. Help us to be about your business, and we pray this in Christ's name.